Chapter 3 Denver's secrets were sweet, accompanied every time by Wild Veronica until she discovered cologne. The first bottle was a gift, the next she stole from her mother and hid among boxwood until it froze and cracked. That was the year winter came in a hurry at supper time and stayed eight months. One of the war years when Miss Bodwin, the white woman, brought Christmas cologne for her mother and herself, oranges for the boys, and another good wool shawl for baby Suggs. Talking of a war full of dead people, she looked happy, flush-faced, and although her voice was heavy as a man's, she smelled like a room full of flowers. Excitement that Denver could have all for herself in the boxwood. Back beyond 124 was a narrow field that stopped itself at a wood. On the yonder side of these woods, a stream. In these woods, between the field and the stream, hidden by post oaks, five boxwood bushes, planted in a ring, had started stretching toward each other four feet off the ground to form a round, empty room seven feet high, its walls fifty inches of murmuring leaves. Bent low, Denver could crawl into this room, and once there, she could stand all the way up in emerald light. It began as a little girl's house play, but as her desires changed, so did the play. Quiet, private, and completely secret except for the noisome cologne signal that thrilled the rabbits before it confused them. First a playroom, where the silence was softer, then a refuge from her brother's fright. Soon the place became the point. In that bower, closed off from the hurt of the hurt world, Denver's imagination produced its own hunger and its own food, which she badly needed because loneliness wore her out. Wore her out. Veiled and protected by the live green walls, she felt ripe and clear, and salvation was as easy as a wish. Once when she was in the boxwood an autumn long, before Paul D. moved into the house with her mother, she was made suddenly cold by a combination of wind and the perfume on her skin. She dressed herself, bent down to leave, and stood up in a snowfall, a thin and whipping snow very like the picture her mother had painted as she described the circumstances of Denver's birth in a canoe straddled by a white girl for whom she was named. So opening up the chapter here, we shifted Denver's perspective for a quick second, um, which is kind of interesting to get her perspective. Um, notice that she has to go outside for comfort, even though the home itself provides her with some sort of comfort and that it's like what she knows, it's really this, this uh, connection to the trees that provides her with um, that sense of comfort. And so that emerald light and all this description of setting, again, setting such an important thing in this book, is really about how trees are representing something very comfortable for her. So I mentioned in chapter two, there was like a lot of tree imagery and a lot of tree metaphors um, with Setha and Paul D and that is the case with Denver as well, but they all mean something different to these different characters. Okay. Um, you also maybe want to think about some of the numbers that Morrison includes. And then um, obviously the snow, you want to go back to Foster there. Shivering, Denver approached the house, regarding it, as she always did, as a person rather than a structure, a person that wept, sighed, trembled, and fell into fits. Her steps and her gaze were the cautious ones of a child approaching a nervous, idle relative, someone dependent but proud. A breastplate of darkness hid all the windows except one. Its dim glow came from baby Sugg's room. When Denver looked in, she saw her mother on her knees in prayer, which was not unusual. What was unusual, even for a girl who had lived all her life in a house peopled by the living activity of the dead, was that a white dress knelt down next to her mother and had its sleeve around her mother's waist. And it was the tender embrace of the dress sleeve that made Denver remember the details of her birth. That and the thin whipping snow she was standing in, like the fruit of common flowers. The dress and her mother together looked like two friendly grown-up women, one, the dress, helping out the other. And the magic of her birth, its miracle, in fact, testified to that friendliness, as did her own name. So that white dress, you might think about... 
Um, that's kind of relating to the title of the book. Easily she stepped into the told story that lay before her eyes on the path she followed away from the window. There was only one door to the house, and to get to it from the back, you had to walk all the way around to the front of 124, past the storeroom, past the cold house, the privy, the shed, on around to the porch. And to get to the part of the story she liked best, she had to start way back, hear the birds in the thick woods, the crunch of leaves underfoot, see her mother making her way up into the hills where no houses were likely to be. How Setha was walking on two feet meant for standing still, how they were so swollen she could not see her arch or feel her ankles. Her leg shaft ended in a loaf of flesh scalloped by five toenails. But she would, could not, would not stop, for when she did, the little antelope rammed her with horns and pawed the ground of her womb with impatient hooves. While she was walking, it seemed to graze quietly, so she walked on two feet meant in this sixth month of pregnancy for standing still. Still near a kettle, still at the churn, still at the tub and ironing board. Milk, sticky and sour on her dress, attracted every small flying thing from gnats to grasshoppers. By the time she reached the hill skirt, she had long ago stopped waving them off. The clanging in her head began as a church bell heard from a distance. It was by then a tight cap of peeling bells around her ears. She sank and had to look down to see whether she was in a hole or kneeling. Nothing was alive but her nipples and the little antelope. Finally, she was horizontal, or must have been because blades of wild onion were scratching her temple and her cheek. Concerned as she was for the life of her children's mother, Setha told Denver. She remembered thinking, well, at least I don't have to take another step. A dying thought if there ever there was one. And she waited for the little antelope to protest. And why she thought of an antelope, Setha could not imagine since she had never seen one. She guessed it must have been an invention held on to from before Sweet Home, when she was very young. Of that place where she was born. Carolina, maybe? Or was it Louisiana? She remembered only song and dance. Not even her own mother, who was pointed out to her by the 88-year-old child who watched over the young ones, pointed out as the one among many backs turned away from her, stooping in a watery field. Patiently, Setha waited for this particular back to gain the rose end and stand. What she saw was a cloth hat as opposed to a straw one, singularity enough in that world of cooing women, each of whom was called ma'am. Setha, ma'am, hold on to the baby. Yes, ma'am. Setha, ma'am. Get some kindling in there. Yes, ma'am. Oh, but when they sang. And oh, but when they danced, and sometimes they danced the antelope. The men as well as the mams, one of whom was certainly her own. They shifted shapes and became something other. Some unchained, demanding other whose feet knew her pulse better than she did. Just like this one in her stomach. I believe this baby's mom, ma'am is going to die in the wild onions on the bloody side of the Ohio River. That's what was on her mind and what she told Denver. Her exact words. And it didn't seem like such a bad idea, all in all, in view of the steps she would not have to take. But the thought of herself stretched out dead while the little antelope lived on, an hour, a day, a day and a night, and her lifeless body grieved her so she made on so she made the groan that made the person walking on a path not ten yards away halt and stand right still. Setha had not heard the walking, but suddenly she heard the standing still, and then she smelled the hair. The voice saying, Who's in there? was all she needed to know that she was about to be discovered by a white boy. That he too had mossy teeth and appetite. That on a ridge of pine near the Ohio River, trying to get her three, trying to get to her three children, one of whom was starving for the food she carried. That after her husband had disappeared, that after her milk had been stolen, her back pulped, her children orphaned. She was not to have an easeful death. No. She told Denver that a something came up out of the earth into her, like a freezing, but moving too, like jaws inside. Look like I was just cold jaws grinding, she said, 
Suddenly she was eager for his eyes to bite into them, to gnaw his cheek. I was hungry, she told Denver, just as hungry as I could be for his eyes. I couldn't wait. So she raised up on her elbow and dragged herself, one pull, two, three, four, toward the young white voice talking about, who that back in there? Come see, I was thinking. Be the last thing you behold, and sure enough, here comes the feet. So I thought, well, that's where I'll have to start. God, do what he would. I'm going to eat his feet off. I'm laughing now, but it's true. I wasn't just set to do it. I was hungry to do it, like a snake, all jaws and hungry. Note some of the animal imagery here. It wasn't no white boy at all. It was a girl, the raggediest looking trash you ever saw saying, look there, uh, if that don't beat all. And now the part Denver loved the best. Her name was Amy, and she needed beef and pot liquor like nobody in this world. Arms like cane stalks and enough hair for four or five heads. Slow-moving eyes. She didn't look at anything quick. Talked so much it wasn't clear how she could breathe at the same time. And those cane stalk arms, as it turned out, were as strong as iron. You about the scariest looking something I ever seen. What are you doing back up in here? Down in the grass, like the snake she believed she was, Setha opened her mouth, and instead of fangs and a split tongue, out shot the truth. Running, Setha told her. It was the first word she had spoken all day, and it came out thick because of her tender tongue. Them the feet you running on? My Jesus, my. She squatted down and stared at Setha's feet. You got anything on you, gal? Pass for food? No. Setha tried to shift to a sitting position, but couldn't. I'd like to die. I'm so hungry. The girl moved her eyes slowly, examining the greenery around her. Thought there'd be huckleberries. Looked like it. That's why I come up in here. Didn't expect to find no woman. If it was any, birds ate them. Do you like huckleberries? I'm having a baby, miss. Amy looked at her. That mean you don't have no appetite? Well, I got to eat me something. Combing her hair with her fingers, she carefully surveyed the landscape once more. Satisfied nothing edible was around, she stood up to go, and Setha's heart stood up too at the thought of being left alone in the grass without a fang in her head. Where are you on your way to, miss? She turned and looked at Setha with freshly lit eyes. Boston, give me some velvet. It's a store there called Wilson. I seen the pictures of it, and they have the prettiest velvet. They don't believe I'm going to get it, but I am. Setha nodded and shifted her elbow. Your ma'am know you on the lookout for velvet? The girl shook her hair out of her face. My mama worked for these here people to pay for her passage. But then she had me, and since she died right after, well, they said I had to work for them to pay it off. I did, but now I want me some velvet. They did not look directly at each other, not straight into the eyes anyway. Yet they slipped effortlessly into yard chat about nothing in particular, except one lay on the ground. Boston, says Eva. Is that far? Ooh, yeah, a hundred miles, maybe more. Must be velvet closer by. Not like in Boston. Boston got the best. Be so pretty on me. You ever touch it? No, miss, I never touched no velvet. Setha didn't know if it was the voice or Boston or velvet, but while the white girl talked, the baby slept. Not one butt or kick, so she guessed her luck had turned. Ever see any? She asked Setha. I bet you never even seen any. If I did, I didn't know it. What's it like? Velvet. Amy dragged her eyes over Setha's face as though she would never give out so confidential a piece of information as that to a perfect stranger. What they call you? She asked. However far she was from Sweet Home, there was no point in giving out her real name to the first person she saw. Lou, said Setha. They call me Lou. Well, Lou, Velvet is like the world was just born. 
clean and new and so smooth. The velvet I seen was brown, but in Boston they got all colors. Carmine. That means red, but when you talk about velvet, you gotta say carmine. She raised her eyes to the sky, and then, as though she had wasted enough time away from Boston, she moved off, saying, I gotta go. Picking her way through the brush, she hollered back to Setha. What are you gonna do? Just lay there and fold? I can't get up from here, said Setha. What? She stopped and turned to, be, turned to hear. I said I can't get up. Amy drew her armor across her nose and came slowly back to where Setha lay. It's a house back yonder, she said. A house? Mmm, I passed it. Ain't no regular house with people in it, though. A lean-to, kind of. How far? Make a difference, does it? You stay the night here, snake get you. Well, he may as well come on. I can't stand up, let alone walk, and God help me, miss, I can't crawl. Sure you can, Luke. Come on, said Amy, and with a toss of her hair enough for five heads, she moved along. She moved toward the path. So she crawled, and Amy walked alongside her, and when Seth needed to rest, Amy stopped, too, and talked some more about Boston and velvet and good things to eat. The sound of that voice, like a 16-year-old voice, going on and on and on, kept the little antelope quiet and grazing. During the whole hateful crawl to the lean-to, it never bucked once. Notice all the animal imagery here. Nothing of Setha's was intact by the time they reached it, except the cloth that covered her hair. Below her bloody knees, there was no feeling at all. Her chest was two cushions of pins. It was the voice of Velvet and Boston and good things to eat that urged her along and made her think that maybe she wasn't, after all, just a crawling graveyard for a six-month baby's last hours. The lean-to was full of leaves, which Amy pushed into a pile for Setha to lie on. Then she gathered rocks, covered them with more leaves, and made Setha put her feet on them, saying, I know a woman who had her feet cut off, they were so swole. And she made sawing gestures with the blade of her hand across Setha's ankles. Zzzz. I used to be a good size, nice arms and everything. Wouldn't think it, would you? That was before they put me in the root cellar. I was fishing off the beaver once, catfishing a beaver river Swedish chicken. Well, I was just fishing there and then floated right by me. Oh, sorry, that's my mistake. Let me go back a second. I used to be a good size, nice arms and everything. Wouldn't think it, would you? That was before they put me in the root cellar. I was fishing off the beaver once, catfishing beaver river Swedish chicken. Well, I was just fishing there and floated right by me. I don't like drowned people. You, your feet remind me of him, all swole like. Then she did the magic, lifted Setha's feet and legs and massaged them until she cried salt tears. It's gonna hurt now, said Amy. Anything dead coming back to life hurts. That's a really important line. You should definitely star that. Okay, anything dead coming back to life hurts. A truth for all times, thought Denver. Maybe the white dress holding its arm around her mother's waist was in pain. If so, it could mean the baby ghost had plans. When she opened the door, Setha was just leaving the keeping room. I saw a white dress holding on to you, Denver said. White? Maybe it was my bedding dress. Describe it to me. Had a high neck, whole mess of buttons coming down the back. Buttons? Oh, that lets out my bedding dress. I never had a button on nothing. Did Grandma ba baby? Setha shook her head. She couldn't handle them, even on her shoes. What else? Bunched the back on the sit-down part. A bustle? It had a bustle? I don't know what it's called. Sort of gathered like, below the waist in the back. Uh-huh. A rich lady's dress. Silk? Cotton looked like. Lil, probably. White, cotton, lil. You say it was holding on to me? How? Like you. It just, it looked just like you. Kneeling next to you while you were praying. Had its arm around your waist. Well, I'll be. 
What were you praying for, man? Not for anything. I don't pray anymore. I just talk. What were you talking about? You won't understand, baby. Yes, I will. I was talking about time. It's so hard for me to believe in it. Some things go, pass on. Some things just stay. I used to think it was my rememory. Notice that word. I didn't make that up. That's a set the word there. You know, some things you forget. Other things you never do. But it's not. Places, places are still there. If a house burns down, it's gone. But the place, the picture of it, stays. And not just in my rememory, but out there in the world. What I remember is a picture floating around out there outside my head. I mean, even if I don't think it, even if I die, the picture of what I did or knew or saw is still out there, right in the place where it happened. Can other people see it? Asked Denver. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Someday you'll be walking down the road and you hear something or see something going on. So clear. And you think it's you thinking it up. A thought picture. But no. It's when you bump into a rememory that belongs to somebody else. Where I was before I came here, that place is real. It's never going away. Even if the whole farm, every tree and grass blade of it dies, the picture is still there, and what's more, if you go there, you who never was there, if you go there and stand in the place where it was, it will happen again. It will be there for you, waiting for you. So Denver, you can't never go there. Never. Because even though it's all over, over and done with, it's going to always be there waiting for you. That's how come I had to get all my children out, no matter what. Denver picked at her fingernails. If it's still there, waiting, that must mean that nothing ever dies. Seth looked right in Denver's face. Nothing ever does, she said. So that's a pretty important section there. If you didn't quite get what Seth was saying there, Basically, you know, these past experiences, they don't just live in what Setha calls her rememory, right? They continue to like almost haunt her now. Um, they're still happening for her. And that's Morrison sort of expanding to a larger point about the effects of slavery, okay? Um, and interestingly, she makes a lot of references to death in the past and things, and that's all kind of setting up for the ghost of beloved, right? Nothing ever dies. Notice, too, that Denver seems, like, very obsessed with the story of her birth, and, you know, she likes to talk about it a lot. And that's because Setha, in trying to avoid harping on the past, because it's just constantly haunting her, is trying to shield Denver from that. But what that's done has created Denver feeling like she doesn't know where she came from, so she doesn't really have an identity. So... Interestingly enough, Setha tries to protect Denver from the past by like keeping her in this house and in this place, but at the same time, it's being haunted by past. So there's some, you know, I guess you could say there's some irony there. Um, Setha and Paul D and a lot of the, the messages of this book are that, you know, they don't feel like they even have a real claim over their memories because they were so controlled by the white man and their position as slaves. Okay, um, you never told me all what happened, just that they whipped you and you run off, pregnant, with me. Nothing to tell except school teacher. He was a little man, short, always wore a collar even in the fields. A school teacher, she said, that made her feel good that her husband's sister's husband had book learning, was willing to come farm sweet home after Mr. Garner passed. The men could have done it, even with Paul left sold, but it was like Hallie said. She didn't want to be 
the only white person on the farm and a woman too, so she was satisfied when the school teacher agreed to come. She, he brought two boys with him, sons or nephews, I don't know. They called him Anka and had pretty manners, all of them. Talk soft and spit in handkerchiefs. Gentle in a lot of ways. You know, the kind who know Jesus by his first name, but out of politeness, never use it even to his face. Pretty good farmer, Hallie said. Not strong as Mr. Garner, but smart enough. He liked the ink I made. It was her recipe, but he preferred how I mixed it, and it was important to him because at night he sat down to write in his book. It was a book about us, but we didn't know that right away. We just thought it was his manner to ask us questions. He commenced to carry around a notebook and write down what we said. I still think it was them questions that tore 6 up. Tore him up for all time. She stopped. Denver knew that her mother was through with it, for now anyway. The single slow blink of her eyes, the bottom lips sliding up slowly to cover the top, and then a nostril sigh, like the snuff of a candle flame. Signs that Setha had reached the point beyond which she would not go. Well, I think the baby got plans, said Denver. What plans? I don't know, but the dress holding on to you got to mean something. Maybe, said Seppa. Maybe it does have plans. So there's going to be more about school teacher later, but basically there that some very, alluding to some very bad things that he's done, um, including breaking Sixo's spirit. Whatever they were or might have been, Paul D. messed them up for good. With the table and a loud male voice, he had rid 124 of his claim to local fame. Denver had taught herself to take pride in the condemnation Negroes heaped on them, the assumption that the haunting was done by an evil thing looking for more. None of them knew the downright pleasure of enchantment, of not suspecting but knowing the things behind things. Her brothers had known, but it scared them. Grandma Baby knew, but it saddened her. None could appreciate the safety of ghost company. Even Setha didn't love it. She just took it for granted, like a sudden change in the weather. So here... You probably understood this, but Denver feels as though Paul D has really messed up the ghost and has like messed up the plans and messed up her security. And so she sees Paul D. I don't want to say she sees him as a threat, but definitely feels that he is threatening. And then also this gives you a little bit of insight into the fact that this is kind of like what she's known for and ostracized for. And so she doesn't really even have a community, especially a black community to support her and, one of the interesting things about human nature is that we really do rely on our support networks and our communities to help us with something we call social capital and um, a sense of belonging and a sense of identity. And so Denver's really struggling because she really only has her mom and her house. She doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have a black community. And as you guys may know, if you you know are involved in like a particular culture or religion or support group, those people really help you get through when things are tough and when you need support and when you need guidance. So she's missing that. But it was gone now. Whooshed away in the blast of a hazelnut man's shout, leaving Denver, Denver's world flat, mostly, with the exception of an emerald closet standing seven feet high in the woods. Her mother had secrets, things she wouldn't tell, things she halfway told. Well, Denver had them too. And hers were sweet. Sweet as Lily of the Valley Cologne. Setha had given little thought to the white dress until Paul D. came, and then she remembered Denver's interpretation. Plans. The morning after the first night with Paul D., Setha smiled, just thinking about what the word could mean. It was a luxury she had not in 18 years, and only that once. Before and since, all her effort was directed not on avoiding pain, but on getting through it as quickly as possible. The one set of plans she made, getting away from Sweet Home, went awry so completely she never dared life by making more. Yet the morning she woke up next to Paul D., the world 
The word her daughter had used a few years ago did cross her mind, and she thought about what Denver had seen kneeling next to her, and thought also of the temptation to trust and remember that gripped her as she stood before the cooking stove in his arms. Would it be all right? Would it be all right to go ahead and feel? Go ahead and count on something? She couldn't think clearly, lying next to him, listening to his breathing. So carefully, carefully, she had left the bed. So this kind of gives you a little bit of insight into the fact that Setha doesn't feel like she can really count on anything because of what's happened to her and because of the effects of slavery in her life as a result of it. Um, so disappointment is sort of a running motif in these early chapters here. Kneeling in the keeping room where she usually went to talk, think it was clear why baby Suggs was so starved for color. There wasn't any except for two orange squares and a quilt that made the absence shout. The walls of the room were slate-colored, the floor earth-brown, the wooden dresser the color of itself, curtains white, and the dominating feature, the quilt over an iron cot, was made up of scraps of blue serge, black, brown, and gray wool, the full range of the dark and that muted the thrift and modesty allowed. In that sober field, two patches of orange looked wild, like life in the raw. Okay, go to town on color symbolism there. Setha looked at her hands, her bottle green sleeves, and thought how little color there was in the house and how strange that she had not missed it the way Baby did. Deliberate, she thought. It must be deliberate, because the last color she remembered was the pink chips in the headstone of her baby girl. After that, she became as color conscious as a hen. Every dawn, she worked at fruit pies, potato dishes, and vegetables while the cook did the soup, meat, and all the rest. And she could not remember remembering a molly apple or a yellow squash. Every day, she saw the dawn, but never acknowledged or remarked its color. There was something wrong with that. It was as though one day she saw red baby blood, another day the pink gravestone chips, and that was the life of it. I want you to think about what color symbolizes here, because both baby Suggs and Setha, who've had similar but different experiences rooted in slavery, both are having these reactions where they can't either remember color, or their lives are devoid of color, or they don't see the colors around them, they're not feeling it, right? So this should be pretty obvious what color is symbolizing here. 124 was so full of strong feeling, perhaps she was oblivious to the loss of anything at all. There was a time when she scanned the fields every morning and every evening for her boys. When she stood at the open window, unmindful of flies, her head cocked to her left shoulder, her eyes searching to the right for them. Cloud shadow on the road, an old woman, a wandering goat, untethered and gnawing bramble. Each one looked at first like Howard, no, Bugler. Little by little, she stopped and their 13-year-old faces faded completely into their baby ones, which came to her only in sleep. When her dreams roamed outside 124, anywhere they wished, she saw them sometimes in beautiful trees, their little legs barely visible in the leaves. Sometimes they ran along the railroad track, laughing too loud, apparently, to hear her because they never did turn around. When she woke, the house crowded in on her. There was the door where the soda crackers were lined up in a row, the white stairs her baby girl loved to climb, the corner where baby Suggs mended shoes, a pile of which were still in the cold room, the exact place on the stove where Denver burned her fingers. And of course, the spite of the house itself, there was no room for any other thing or body until Paul D. arrived and broke up the place, making room, shifting it, moving it over to someplace else than standing in the place he had made. So, kneeling in the keeping room the morning after Paul D. came, she was distracted by the two orange squares that signaled how barren 124 really was. Those last lines are pretty important there. Hopefully we talk about that in our discussion. He was responsible for that. Emotions sped to the surface in his company. Things became what they were. Drabness looked drab. Heat was hot. Windows suddenly had a view. And wouldn't you know he'd be a singing man. Little rice, little bean, no meat in between. Hard work ain't easy. Dry bread ain't greasy. He was up now and singing as he mended things he had broken the day before. Drama. Metaphor. 
Some old pieces of song he'd learned on the prison farm or in the war afterward. Nothing like what they sang at Sweet Home, where yearning fashioned every note. The songs he knew from Georgia, prison, were flat-headed, nails pounding and pounding and pounding. Lay my head on the railroad line, train come along, pacify my mind. If I had my weight in line, I'd whip my captain till he went stone blind. Five cent nickel, ten cent dime, busting rocks is busting time. But they didn't fit, these songs. They were too loud, had too much power for the little house chores he was engaged in, resetting table legs, glazing. He couldn't go back to storm upon the waters that they sang under the trees of Sweet Home, so he contented himself with, mm, throwing in a line if one occurred to him, and what occurred over and over was, bare feet and chamomile sap, took off my shoes, took off my hat. It was tempting to change the words, give me back my shoes, give me back my hat, because he didn't believe he could live with a woman, any woman, for over two out of three months. That was about as long as he could abide one place. After Delaware and before that Alfred, Georgia, where he slept underground and crawled into sunlight for the sole purpose of breaking rock, walking off when he got ready was the only way he could convince himself that he would no longer have to sleep, pee, eat, or swing a sledgehammer in chains. So here, Morrison's kind of giving you a little bit of an insight into the fact that Paul D. has trouble belonging somewhere, and there's lots of reasons for that. But this was not a normal woman in a normal house. As soon as he stepped through that red light, he knew compared to 124, the rest of the world was bald. After Alfred, he had shut down a generous portion of his head, operating on the part that helped him walk, eat, sleep, sing. If he could do those things, a little work and a little sex thrown in, he asked for no more, for more required him to dwell on Hallie's face and Sixo's laughing. To recall trembling in a box built into the ground, grateful for the daylight spent doing mule work in a quarry because he did not tremble when he had a hammer in his hands. The box had done what Sweet Home had not, what working like an ass and living like a dog had not, drove him crazy, so he would not lose his mind. Lots of interesting ways that Morrison is playing with language there, but one of the things you need to understand is that Paul D is sort of a person who's turned off his emotions and turned off feelings and turned off living, because that's the only way that he really could survive the trauma and the pain and just the terrible, awful things that's happened to him. By the time he got to Ohio, then to Cincinnati, then to Hallie Sugg's mother's house, he thought he had seen and felt it all. Even now, as he put back the window frame he had smashed, he could not account for the pleasure and his surprise at seeing, at seeing Hallie's wife alive, barefoot with uncovered hair, walking around the corner of the house with her shoes and stockings in her hands. The closed portion of his head opened like a greased block. I was thinking of looking for work around here. What do you think? Ain't much. River mostly, and hogs. Well, I never worked on water, but I can pick up anything heavy as me, hogs included. White people better here than Kentucky, but you may have to scramble some. It ain't whether I scramble, it's where. You saying it's all right to scramble here? Better than all right. Your girl, Denver, seems to me she's of a different mind. Why you say that? She's got a waiting way about her. Something she's expecting, and it ain't me. I don't know what it could be. Well, whatever it is, she believes I'm interrupting it. Don't worry about her. She's a charm child, from the beginning. Is that right? Uh-huh. Nothing bad can happen to her. Look at it. Everybody I knew, dead or gone or dead and gone. Not her. Not my Denver. Even when I was carrying her, when it got clear that I wasn't going to make it, which meant she wasn't going to make it either, she pulled a whacker out of the hill. The last thing you'd expect to help. And when the school teacher found us and came busting in here with the law and his shotgun, school teacher found you? Took a while, but he did, finally. He didn't take you back? Oh, no, I wasn't going back there. I don't care who found who. Any life, but not that one. I went to jail instead. Denver was just a baby, so she went right along with me. Rats bit her everything in there but her. 
Baldy turned away. He wanted to know more about it, but jail talk put him back in Alfred, Georgia. I need some nails. Anybody around here I can borrow from, or should I go to town? May as well go to town. You'll need other things. One night, and they were already talking like a couple. They had skipped love and promise and went directly to, you saying it's all right to scramble here? To Setha, the future was a matter of keeping the past at bay. The better life she believed she and Denver were living was simply not that other one. The fact that Paul D had come out of that other one into her bed was better too, and the notion of a future with him, or that matter without him, was beginning to stroke her mind. As for Denver, the job Setha had of keeping her from the past that was still waiting for her was all that mattered. Okay, a couple of things here at the end. So Paul D and Setha decide that they're going to kind of like make a go of it and see what happens. Okay. Um, but he knows she doesn't like him, Denver rather. Um, and he, he knows that there's a conflict there. He's surprised to hear that Setha has been in jail, which that's what she's referring to. They, they take her to jail for running away. Um, and so she takes Denver when she's really little. So she spends a few years in uh, jail with her baby. Paul D wants to ask her about it. But it's too traumatizing just to even talk about prison. So he's not going to. Um, <clears throat> and then at the end there is where we get into what I was talking about earlier with her trying to shield Denver from the past. Um, and that line, the future was a matter of keeping the past at bay is really important because, again, we get into these like past, present, future. And for Setha, you know, her her future is the past that continues to keep coming. Um while she's desperately trying to shield Denver from it and, and herself in a way too. Um, and so that's kind of where we leave off in chapter three.